We've talked about it before. The places that are the most comfortable. The warm, cozy, intimate places where you're the most vulnerable. Perhaps your home. What happens when that place that you find the most peace becomes the location of your haunting? Is it that the people before you refuse to let go of what was once their most precious piece of the tangible world? Or is there something more about catching us off guard? Are the spirits that haunt our homes motivated by the violation of our personal space or by their own desire for what was once their most comforting place? Welcome. This is Flee! the two cities. Oh, I'm so excited. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Nikki, and this is Tales of Two Cities. In previous episodes, Ellie and I have shared with y'all our own experiences, seeing faces in glass, a man on a couch, and dark figures in a corner. But we're not alone. Haunted houses are amongst the most popular locations for spooky tales. One such home sits on Capitol Hill in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Alfred McCune home was built for its namesake in 1900. McCune himself was an interesting character, born in Calcutta, India, where his father, Matthew, was stationed with the British Army. Matthew converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the family eventually settled in what was then the Utah Territory. Alfred, too, joined the LDS Church in Farmington in 1857. He and his childhood sweetheart, Elizabeth, were married on July 1, 1872, in Salt Lake City. While Alfred was not very active in the church, what he lacked in action he provided in money. By the time he was 21, he had contracted to build portions of the Utah Southern Railroad, He'd become a very successful railroad builder and was well-connected to other millionaires of the time. He partnered with J.P. Morgan, William Randolph Hearst, and Frederick William Vanderbilt in Peruvian Cerro de Pasco mines. He owned businesses throughout Utah, in parts of Montana, Canada, and South America. His businesses and social status brought him great respect. He was known for his integrity, congeniality, and generosity. He was politically ambitious and even ran for Senate in 1899 as the Democratic candidate against Republican incumbent Frank J. Cannon and several other candidates. The vote was split and no one received a majority of votes. The election was the first time in Utah that they were unable to select or send a senator to Washington. Alfred later tried again for a Senate seat but was defeated by Thomas Kearns, another mining and railroad magnate. Like Alfred, Elizabeth had varied interests. She served in many LDS church positions and became close with Susie Young Gates, a daughter of Brigham Young. Elizabeth was a staunch supporter of women's rights and attended the 1889 International Congress of Women in London. She was voted a patron of the organization and was even entertained by Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. The couple decided to build an extravagant home in 1900. Alfred even financed a two-year tour of America and Europe for his architect, 
SC Dallas so that he could study unique designs and techniques. The couple chose a Gothic revival plan with East Asian influence. The home is a replica of one that Alfred and Elizabeth saw while in New York City. While waiting for the home to be built, the couple called upon the church for help. They needed a place to stay. They contacted the LDS church to see if they could rent a home that was intended to be a residence and office for LDS church leaders. They agreed to pay $150 per month and live there while their home was constructed. The location of their home was chosen as it rose above the nearby streets. They spared no expense for the extravagant decoration, including mahogany from San Domingo, oak from England, and a rare white-grained mahogany from South Africa. Red roof tiles were brought from the Netherlands, and an enormous mirror was shipped from Germany in a specially constructed rail car. Walls were covered in silk, tapestries, and Russian leather. Fireplaces were built with Nubian marble, and the home's exterior was locally sourced with red Utah sandstone. A long walkway of steps lead up to an open porch. The red sandstone brick contrasts the green hill on which the home sits, and the 21-room home has a conical turret and an oval patio. It's less than welcoming. The Gothic architecture and wrought iron is imposing and cold. The home was completed in 1901 for a total cost of $1 million. That today would be about $30 million. A few unusual things happened to the couple while they lived there. A granddaughter recalled an armed robbery while she was staying there. She explained that her grandmother told her to stay in bed because she could hear gunshots downstairs. The robbers left with only some silverware and were later caught. But it wasn't the only time that shots were fired in the home. Another time, Alfred was sitting down at a table for breakfast. A bullet flew past his head and lodged itself into the wall of the breakfast room. But the family also had great gatherings in the home. It wasn't all bad. In July of 1917, Elizabeth invited her closest friends for a weekend retreat. Husbands were allowed to enter the home only once that weekend for 4th of July dinner. Guests chose their own bedroom and bathroom and were gifted gingham dresses that could be worn all weekend. It became a tradition. And knowing that they loved to entertain, the couple had designed a small room beneath the stairs where a few musicians could enter and sit so that they could play music for events. While uncomfortable, they were well compensated. Guests could never determine where the music was coming from, though more than once, Music has been heard, and no musicians were in the room. Perhaps it's related to what happened next in the home. The couple lived and enjoyed the home until 1920, when they decided to move to Los Angeles. In leaving Salt Lake, they decided to donate the home to their church. They thought that perhaps the home could be used as an official residence for the church president, Herbert J. Grant. Grant, though, didn't feel comfortable living in such an ornate home. He decided, instead, to turn it into a music school. It became the McCune School of Music until 1957, and in 1973, the LDS Church sold the home to a group of Salt Lake City residents, who desired to turn it into a cultural center, and in 1974, the home was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. 
It first became the Virginia Tanner Modern Dance School and held lessons in the home's ballroom. It transferred hands again and became privately owned. It was frequently used for weddings and other rentals. And in 1999, Philip McCarthy purchased the home to restore it after the Salt Lake City tornado, which toppled one of the home's smokestacks. He completed the restoration in 2001. The home has had many reports of strange happenings. And as I mentioned, the music that was heard with no source continued for years following the home's builders and the music school. Even today, music can be heard through the house with no origin. Doors without locks on them become unopenable and lights flicker. The home has several cold spots. The elevator, installed later in the home's renovations, is known to run by itself with no one in it and no one pushing buttons. When used for weddings, arrangements placed the night before are found to be rearranged the next morning. Voices have been reported and doors open on their own. McCarthy has described having locked the doors at night, turned off all the lights, and leaving the home on more than one occasion, only to see in his rearview mirror that the home has lights flickering on and off. A man in a cape has been seen watching people when they enter there alone. Linda Dunning documented their experience. Quote, My first experience with the McCune Mansion was when I was with my friend to check it out as a possible site for her wedding reception. I was 21. We were given the grand tour, and I was able to stay behind in the ballroom on the third floor for quite some time while my friend went on the tour alone. When I first saw it, I just couldn't leave it, for it was the very ballroom from my dreams as a child. When I was in the ballroom initially, I had plenty of time and just sat there enjoying its splendor, totally unaware of my intuitive ability. Huge mirrors, balconies, and alcoves of the most exquisite woods and little pillars surrounded by seats and mirrors surrounded me. I had a strong feeling of having been there before, and at the same time, I was aware of a presence in the room. I didn't see her, but in my mind's eye, I could have described her perfectly. Long brown hair, slender build, above average height, gliding gracefully from mirror to mirror, dressed in a long white nightgown that seemed to repel her from mirror to mirror. The mysteries of this house became just that, unsolved mysteries. Had a few other things not come my way, I would have just filed these mysteries in my fool's file of experiences that are never answered. I expected the mansion's mysteries to remain so. I was working on these books, doing my research, and ran across Jack Goldman's book, As You Pass By, which is a collection of his various columns in the Salt Lake Tribune on architecture and history. The McCune Mansion was in it, and it was here for the first time that I heard of the Virginia Tanner Modern Dance School, which was conducted in the ballroom for many years. Others knew this from firsthand experience, having taken dance from her, but I knew nothing about it. The sentence that caught my eye, however, was the one that mentioned how Virginia Tanner had insisted that little girls all wear something called Ginny gowns, which were long white nightgowns, much like Wendy in Peter Pan. Linda clearly describes having seen something that others often report too. Manifestations such as organ music that can be heard through the home, 
voices that echo, and chuckles as lights are turned on and off. Some have suggested that the entity perhaps is Alfred. He's maybe still there, celebrating holidays with his family. A gentle male spirit has been seen wearing a black cape as he follows visitors who are alone into any room. A son of McCarthy once described the man as non-threatening. He watched him enter the room and then simply disappear. But others, like Linda, describe a 10-year-old girl. She's seen wearing a gown and walking into and out of a mirror hanging on the west wall of the home. Her footprints remain in the home. In several rooms, they can be seen, but then suddenly disappear in the middle of the room. Some claim to have captured this young girl on film at weddings, and many have suggested that she is the one responsible for moving the wedding arrangements at night. Regardless of who these spirits are, it's clear that they aren't going anywhere soon. Perhaps the McCure family members or musicians who had fond memories of this one-time school. Either way, the home remains a piece of history and is standing tall in our world, but it's also clear it's still very much a part of theirs. I bet you didn't know that Nikki and I share social media responsibilities. Sometimes you're talking to Nikki, and sometimes you're talking to me. Sometimes we're on point on what we're showing you, and sometimes, well, we make a mistake. Last year we did an episode on Ohio, and I made a mistake. I was in charge of the social media account for the Ohio episode, and I posted a photo that I thought would be an image of Helltown. It wasn't. Thankfully, a listener corrected me of my mistake. However, that image that I put up was the Mudhouse Mansion, a story that equally sits in speculation. It was a beautiful building that sat for years, abandoned, and let me tell you, comes with some lore that is equally as eerie as that of Helltown. Sometimes, mistakes bring us something beneficial. So please join me and learn from my mistake. The Mudhouse Mansion is a bit of a mystery. Sitting in an open field in Fairfield County, just east of Lancaster, Ohio, The Red Estate sits as a reminder of things that once happened, but we tried to forget. As a reminder of things that we want to forget. It is that lingering image at the corner of your peripheral. It is an image that reminds us that some things cannot be swept under the rug. It is believed that the mansion was built sometime in the late 1800s. It was bought around 1839 or 1825 by Christian and Eleanor Rue from Abraham Cagney and Henry Byler. The property was sold in the 1920s to the Hartman family. Sometime in the 1930s, the owner of the house, Henry Hartman, died, and the property went to his daughter, Lulu Hartman. Lulu was married to Orrin Mast, and their descendants still own the land today. Sometime in the 1930s, after the acquirement from Lulu, the property fell into abandonment. 
Soon, long blades of grass had cut through the walkway that attached to the house. Eventually, the paint peeled and snicked, exposing a wooden center built by those once hopeful of what it would become. And the interior soon became covered with a light dust membrane, setting an image of it being frozen in time. Being something of such mystery draws in some interested travelers. Up until 2015, the area became home for many transients and traveling free spirits who would make the establishment into their temporary homes. Because of that, they began to see things and experience some unsettling stories. One of the stories involves the story of the Civil War and a young slave. It was said that a government official lived in the premises of the estate and kept slaves underground near the house. Like any slave owner, the official treated the slaves badly, to the point that one tried to escape. It is said that one night, the slave dug himself out, entered the house, and slaughtered the official and his entire family. The family still haunts the house, stuck in a reoccurring nightmare of how they died. There is another story of a family that was murdered in the house as well. In 1892, a local man moved into the establishment with his wife and three children. At first glance, they looked like a good, wholesome American family. However, they conducted themselves in a manner that seemed odd and different. For example, they never went outside the house and never connected with the rest of the community. They were essentially ghosts, something unsettling for a small town in the 1800s. One night, a neighbor woke with an uncomfortable feeling in his stomach, so he decided to go on a nightly stroll. However, that feeling escalated when he went outside. Walking down the street, something strange caught his eye. It was a figure of a woman, dressed in white, standing on the second floor window. Her eyes were empty, and it seemed to the neighbor that she wasn't looking at him, just past him. Somewhere where reality and imagination collide. The whole situation made the neighbor uncomfortable, who, in turn, went straight home. However, that image, that idea, never left his mind. The next day, he decided to check it out again. And yet again, the figure was standing there, staring. The day after that, staring. And the day after that. By the tenth day, the neighbor called the police and they came to investigate. What they found rattled all of them to the bone. It was the family, hanging lifeless, dressed in white gowns. The figure wasn't an apparition or a harbinger of death, but the mother, who had been hanging lifeless by the window for several weeks. However, the state is also home for another piece of lore. It is believed it is the home of the original
Bloody Mary. If you say her name three or five times in front of the mirror, she will appear. Children in the town have called that mud house the House of Mary. In the folklore, she had children that were either killed by her or her husband. However, whoever did it instilled the ghostly tragedy. But a lot of this is just hearsay. The only thing that can be certain is that the building was demolished on September 21st, 2015 by the owner, Jeanne Mast. Because of the lore mixed with the aspect of it being an abandoned mansion, Jeanne had to hire guards to make sure no one would trespass. While many still mourn the loss of the structure, the area was a danger and it would constantly be visited by travelers despite the many attempts to make it stop. So legally, she had to tear it down. And with it went the story behind this mysterious structure. Home again, home again, jiggity jig, was a saying my mom would say every time we would come home. It was silly, but it has a point. Home is where our heart is. It is where our soul rests. It is a part of us. But what happens when we leave? Do we leave simply the structure behind? Or do we leave a bit of ourselves? And when we die, does our soul find comfort in what we used to find our home, our center? If houses are our center, our base, is it too far of a reach to see the haunted house as the epicenter of our spiritual energy? I really can't say. It's just something to consider. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast device. We're also on Spotify and Stitcher, so please join us there too. If you'd like to have more than just free stuff, check out our Patreon. Nikki and I create special episodes for the one-time fee of $5. We also offer merch, shout-outs, and other deals as well. If you want to represent us, please check out our merch store on TeePublic. We offer many exclusive Tales of Two Cities items, as well as items from artists all over the world. If you want to talk, write to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our email at Tales of the Number Two Cities Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, and we generally love telling your stories on our podcast as well. But above all, and most importantly, Thank you for listening to this episode.